And Lord, as we now prepare ourselves to come to your word, we come, Lord, once again asking that you would feed us our daily bread, that you would give us what we need, that you would nourish our souls with your word. Give us strength, uh, give us understanding, and give us a desire, O Lord, to do your will, to walk in obedience to your word that Christ may be glorified in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 19. Uh, we're going to be covering the whole chapter today as we continue in our study of 1 Samuel. Uh, and this is, um, this is a great chapter. I think this is a chapter that will bless you. We have seen how Fiercely, David started to be persecuted by Saul in the previous chapter. And we've seen how this actually connects with the beatitude from the Sermon on the Mount that we actually covered earlier this month, that there will be persecution for those who stand for righteousness. And David, in his day, stood for righteousness. Well, what hope do we have of surviving? We actually have the same hope that David had. The thing that preserved David and allowed him to persevere in standing for righteousness is the same thing that will save us and keep us and preserve us for God's use despite the fact that we might be persecuted. So we'll see that as we go through this chapter, chapter 19, which is what we will be studying today. There's a slogan out there that has gained uh, a lot of popularity in recent years. It's gained a, a, lot of, a lot of steam in recent years. And the saying or the slogan is this, Christ or chaos. Now maybe you've heard somebody say that. The idea is usually that these are the only two options that an individual has, Christ or chaos. Uh, for some, it would be a dichotomy uh, for the two choices that the entire culture has. So I want to start this morning off, this study this morning off, by pushing back a little bit on this slogan, especially when it's applied to a culture or to a nation, because I don't think that it's uh, accurate, at least not necessarily accurate, when it's applied to cultures or nations, which means that this slogan at least potentially presents a fallacy that we would refer to as a false dichotomy. Now, it's easy for us to shout a slogan like that in the midst of a culture like ours, where our culture is today, because our culture, make no mistake about it, and I don't think anybody has, our culture is a culture that has rejected Christ and has rejected Christ's righteousness. And it's also a culture that is becoming increasingly chaotic, uh, at least morally speaking. But uh, everybody remembers 2020 and the chaos of 2020. It's an increasingly chaotic culture that we live in. But I would argue from our own culture's history that there is a lot of space between the dichotomy of Christ or chaos. Uh, in my entire life, I've lived in a, a lot of places. I have never once seen our nation demonstrate 
a predominant Christianity. Uh, not in the South, when I lived in the South for several years, not in the Southwest, uh, and, and not in the Pacific Northwest. Even in the areas of our country that I've lived in where many, if, if not most, people go to church every Sunday, uh, what's clear when you start to talk to people is that most of them are not Christians. Uh, instead, they are just checking a box because this is just what you do on Sunday. Uh, but I've never lived in a place in my entire life, and I'm 51 years old, I've never lived in a place that was predominantly Christian, and I would say, neither of you, and neither has anyone. Actually, neither has anyone in all of history, and yet things have not always been chaotic, at least nowhere near as chaotic as they are now, uh, not even remotely close to as chaotic as they are now. But at the same time, I do recognize that there is a degree of truth to this slogan, because if a person will not come to Christ, if a person will not believe in Christ, and by believing in Christ, I mean they are also yielding themselves to Christ. They're also walking according to the Lord's precepts in His Word. If a person will not submit himself or herself to the teachings of Scripture, then that person has no objective criteria for determining whether something is good or bad. They have no objective moral standard. One of the ways to open the, open the proverbial eyes of, of somebody who has rejected Christ is to listen and wait for them to make a moral truth claim and then ask them, on what basis or by what standard are you uh, drawing this moral line? Right? This forces the even remotely rational person to see one of two things. E either, number one, either they'll see that they don't have an objective standard and so their statement really is meaningless, or they'll see that everyone has the same moral laws written on their hearts, which should force any rational, any thinking person to ask why everybody in the world has the same moral code uh, written on their hearts. Hmm, what a mystery. So how can a person or, or a society, a culture, not be thrown headfirst into moral chaos if they have rejected Christ, if they've rejected the Scriptures? And the answer is actually pretty simple. The reason that we haven't always had the same kind of chaos that we have today, even though we haven't been a Christian nation, is due to something that we refer to as common grace. Uh, an article titled The Example of the English Puritans from the September 1996 edition of uh, Reformation Today magazine said this. It said, quote, The Puritans were experts in their understanding of the concept of common grace, although they did not use that term. Uh, they believed that the Holy Spirit is constantly active in restraining evil and promoting good throughout society. Even in societies in which the vast majority of people have rejected Christ and have rejected God's Word as the objective uh, source of morality? Yes. So what is common grace? Richard Mueller, in his Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms, defines it this way. He says that it's, quote, a non-saving, universal grace according to which God in His goodness bestows His favor upon all creation in the general blessings of physical sustenance and moral influence for the good. And thus, rain falls on the just and the unjust, and all men have the law engraved on their hearts, end quote. 
So one thing that we have to understand when we're talking about this is that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the King of the nations. Before He gave the Great Commission, He said all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Him. He is the King of the world. He's the one who's sovereign over the nations. He's not only the King of nations that receive Him, and by the way, there's never been a nation that has entirely received Him, but He's also Lord and King over nations that reject Him as well. So, He does what He does, whatever He pleases among the nations. And nobody can thwart His hand. Nobody can turn Him away from accomplishing His purposes. So He's free to express and to exercise common grace over the nations, and He's free to withdraw it. Either way, Paul tells us that He works all things after the counsel of His own will. That's from Ephesians 1.11. And common grace just happens to be one of the weapons or one of the tools in God's divine arsenal. Now as we continue in our study of 1 Samuel today, we're going to see the way that common grace was demonstrated uh, in the preservation of David's life. We'll see it in the life of King Saul, uh, because King Saul is not, uh, he's not a child of God. Uh, to say that King Saul completely rejected God, and that King Saul couldn't have cared less about God's law or about God's word, uh, that's about the least controversial thing you can say about somebody like King Saul. Uh, we've seen what vanity he was characterized by. Of utmost concern in his mind was constantly not the glory of God, but the glory of King Saul. Uh, after defeating Goliath in the Valley of Elah, uh, David was thrown into the national spotlight. We saw that back in chapter 17. And what we saw in chapter 18 is that almost everybody in Israel absolutely loved David, uh, viewing him really as a national hero. Uh, the only people who didn't love him in this manner were the people who hated him. Uh, and King Saul clearly fell in that camp, uh, even though David had been a faithful servant to King Saul. Not only did he defeat Goliath, but he had been a faithful servant who played music, uh, played his harp for King Saul to uh, relieve King Saul's uh, sense of, of agony and distress that he constantly had. Uh, but immediately after defeating Goliath, King Saul immediately started viewing David with contempt. In fact, he hated David, and he saw David as his enemy. In chapter 18, we saw that Saul sought to get David out of the way by killing him. Uh, first, he tried murdering David himself. Uh, he tried to pin him to his own wall, running around his house, chasing David with his spear. Uh, a, a total picture of insanity. Then he would put him into a prominent position in the military, thinking that, well, if, if he's not able to kill him, then the enemy will be able to kill him on the battlefield. Uh, and nevertheless, David still only prospered. Uh, but nevertheless, Saul would not give up in his desire and in his efforts to take David's life and get him out of the way. Eventually, King Saul uh, convinced David to bring him a hundred foreskins of the Philistines as a bride price for his daughter, Michal, thinking that uh, the Philistines would surely eliminate David if he started desecrating the bodies of their dead soldiers. 
But David came back, not with a hundred Philistine foreskins, but with two hundred, and Michal's hand was given to him in marriage. We saw at the end of chapter 18 that then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. That's the context into which we are coming today as we get to chapter 19. As we get to uh, chapter 19, it's going to be just more of the same. Uh, But we're also going to see that God is faithful to His promises, His purposes, and His people, and that He uses common grace as a means of sustaining and preserving these things. How does David survive? Because God has common grace on even those who hate him. That's the point of the passage that we come to today. Uh, King Saul exemplifies the, the absolute downward spiral into insanity that unbelief logically results in. Uh, just as he had every reason to love David, and yet he hated David, he also had every reason to love and to worship God, and yet he hated God. And God would not, therefore, allow Saul to have a sense of peace in his life. He would feel this tension between the desires of his flesh and the duty to do what he knew was good and right and and expected of Israel's king. So we'll see him, kind of from here on out, uh, for the rest of his life, bouncing back and forth repeatedly between these two positions where he wants to do this, but he knows he shouldn't do it, so he knows that he should do this instead. And it will show us the insanity, the absolute insanity of his unbelief. So our passage picks up with Saul having been firmly established as absolutely hating David, uh, viewing David as his enemy, and learning that David was becoming increasingly uh, esteemed because of his accomplishments against the Philistines on the battlefield. We'll start with verses uh, 1 to 7 in chapter 19 of 1 Samuel. It says, Now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. If I find out anything, then I will tell you. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. For he took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these words. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as formerly. Now Saul himself had been unable to murder David in the previous chapter, despite his close proximity to David. Then we saw that the Philistines couldn't get David killed either, but King Saul wasn't going to give up. He wasn't going to uh, stop desiring to 
kill David. So if neither he nor the Philistines could do it, Saul thought that maybe somebody else in Israel uh, could do it, somebody who was close to the king. He wouldn't want to put the word out too much or too, too far uh, that he wanted to eliminate David because most of Israel, almost everyone in Israel loved David. It would have only turned to, uh, it won't serve to, to turn the people against King Saul if too many people knew. But his servants could know what his plans were. And so now King Saul explicitly instructs all of his servants, including his son Jonathan, to murder David. Now here's the thing. Saul knows that the spirit of Yahweh is with David and upon David. That is the ultimate reason. That's the ultimate source of the hostility that exists between Saul and David. It doesn't exist between David and Saul. David doesn't have a problem with King Saul. Saul's the one with the problem because he's got a problem with God. But he instructs those who are closest to himself to murder David anyway, even though he knows that the Spirit of Yahweh is with and on David. Do you see how completely irrational that is? You might even say that's a really dumb idea. It's a really bad idea. King Saul, of all people, should know that the Spirit of God being upon David would ensure that David would be kept safe and sound. And by sending those who were closest to himself after David, Saul is putting their lives, his servants' lives, uh, his son's life, and, and, and possibly their souls in danger. Not David's. But that is the irrationality. That is the insanity of unbelief. Now, we don't know if, if King Saul knew about the covenant that had been established uh, between his son, Jonathan, and David, uh, but Jonathan ends up being one of the people instructed to murder David. And because of the great love that Jonathan has for David, because of their common faith, and because of the covenant that they have made between them, between Jonathan and David, Jonathan goes to David now with the news that his father, King Saul, wanted David dead. Now, Jonathan has a plan. He has this plan that David will hide out in, in some field nearby, some specific field, and Jonathan will bring his father out to the field in the morning where he'll try to intercede on David's behalf. He'll try to reason with his father. And if his father will not relent, uh, we can see that David will be close by, and so Jonathan will be able to get the news to him immediately, giving you know, David uh, an opportunity to escape as quickly as possible with his life. Uh, but before we move on, I think it's important to see what Jonathan is doing here. Yeah, he's, he's doing the right thing by trying to preserve innocent blood, right? Okay, and, that, and that's a noble thing. That's a, a good thing. We can recognize that. But Jonathan is also showing us that his greater loyalty is with his spiritual family than with his blood family. Now, you may recall the time in Jesus' ministry when he was preaching and he was healing people and, uh, and in the middle of him speaking to uh, a, a multitude of people, a crowd of people one time, someone comes up to Jesus and, and tells him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. And what did Jesus say? He said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And by the way, it's not that Jesus didn't know. 
Of course he did. But he wanted to make a point, and so we're told. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. That's from Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50. And Jonathan recognized this principle well ahead of his time. His loyalty is more with his spiritual family than with his blood family because of the common faith that he shared with David. He had a greater sense of obligation, a greater sense of loyalty to David than he did to his own godless father. But at the same time, I love what Jonathan does here because he doesn't uh, just go on and sin against his father by dishonoring his father. And you do know, I hope, that uh, the command to honor our fathers and our mothers is a commandment that does not have an expiration date. Uh, Jonathan is a grown man at this point. He is at least a generation probably ahead of David. Uh, But Jonathan is a grown man, and yet he still has the responsibility before God to honor his father, to obey this commandment. And so Jonathan shows us, in the way that he goes to his father, he shows us the way a child of God should approach someone who is plotting to commit a heinous sin. He goes to his father in an honoring and a gracious way. But it's also a direct way. It's also a very courageous, a bold way in which he appeals directly to Scripture as the moral compass. And so David hides out in this field and Jonathan takes King Saul out to the field to reason with him and to plea with him. Uh, In a nutshell, he essentially says four things. Uh, Jonathan says four things to his father. First of all, he tells his father what he Uh, that that what he wants to do, that what Saul wants to do, that spilling David's blood, killing David, uh, and what he's instructed his servants to do is sinful. By what standard? Obviously, the Ten Commandments, right? Scripture. Uh, That's that's a given there. And and that's because the reason is because David is an innocent man. Spilling the blood of an innocent man is sinful. And in fact, third, David has been a blessing in Uh, King Saul's life. The only reason that King Saul and Jonathan uh, aren't in Philistine shackles as they have this conversation was because David had defeated Goliath. And fourth, Saul, uh, Saul saw the victory himself. And he even rejoiced over it. He saw that it was a good thing. So now why would he desire to sin against David's innocent blood? What we see here is that this is very reasonable. It's, it's very logical. It, it's a plea for his father to return to reason and to think rationally about what he's desiring to do himself or what he is asking others to do for him. This appeal to, to reason, this appeal to logic is really an appeal to common grace. Uh, can lost people think rationally? Of course they can. Of course, they, they, they know that if they run a red light, they could get a ticket or they could kill somebody or, uh, you know, all kinds of things can happen. That's rational. Uh, they know uh, not to eat things that shouldn't be eaten. Uh, they can recognize that shedding innocent blood is morally wrong. Now, common grace is not sufficient to bring someone to salvation, at least not directly, But God uses common grace to accomplish His purposes, which can certainly include, and does certainly include, 
preserving the lives of his people. And that's what happens here. When Jonathan appeals to reason with his father, uh, King Saul's evil, his plot, was restrained, at least temporarily. And so Saul vows in verse 6, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. That's reasonable. The, the appeal to reason has worked. There is a morality that, that King Saul recognizes. And see, there's a morality that is common to all people, common to all, all of humanity. It's the law of God which is written on the human heart. How does anybody know uh, what's right or wrong, even when they don't believe? It's because the Word of God, the law of God, is written on their heart. Uh, Paul refers to this in Romans 2.14 when he's discussing the guilt that the Gentiles, uh, who have never read the Scriptures and thus were ignorant of the law, would nevertheless have. Even if they didn't read the law, they would still be guilty. Why? Because the law of God's written on their hearts, and they knew that it was wrong. So they had no excuse because God has put his law on their hearts. That's what Paul's argument was. This is how people know that things like murder and stealing and fornicating are sinful, even if they've never read the Bible. As Christians, in an age of rampant biblical illiteracy, in our age, in our culture. We can do what Jonathan has done here. We, we can appeal to God's law. And we can refer to it as sin. Uh, using reason and the law of God written on every heart in an attempt to thwart the evil plans even of unregenerate people. And while it looks like, from our perspective, evil is prevailing in the culture. The fact is that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ, who is king over every nation. He is perfectly capable of using a common grace like reason to restrain evil in the world. And in fact, he does this way more than any of us could possibly even realize. One commentator makes a great point on this passage. He notes that, quote, we can say of Christianity what Jonathan said of David. It has done you good. Why should you do it harm? I mean, think about it. Most people haven't considered that without Christianity, there would be no such thing as equal rights. That's a concept that's rooted in the fact that we believe that the image of God is in every person. That's where that comes from. If you don't have the image of God, the idea that the image of God is in every person, you don't have a concept of equal rights. Without Christianity, there would be no equal rights. There would be no hospitals. There would be slavery worldwide. All you need to do is look at countries that have little or no Christian influence to see how true that is. Uh, the same goes with women having equal rights. Uh, there would be no public education system without Christianity. What do you think Harvard was established by? It was established by Puritans. Uh, people don't even realize how many things they take for granted in our godless culture uh, that can be traced back to Christians uh, who desired something for the world's good. And God blessed their efforts. That includes science, by the way. Science can be traced back to Christians. But since his life was no longer in danger, at least for now, David goes ahead and he goes back to King Saul's service, which, by the way, speaks volumes 
about David's trust in the Lord and in his own character. Let's continue, verses 8, and 10, uh, 8 to 10. It says, When there was war again, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with great slaughter, so that they fled before him. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the harp with his hand. Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he uh, stuck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. So he has, uh, with, with Jonathan having gone to his father and talked him off that, that cliff, at least for now, uh, Jonathan brought David back to King Saul's service and David went. Uh, and David, uh, now that he's back in King Saul's service, once a war breaks out, David is the one to lead it, uh, lead the charge against the Philistines. And thus we see uh, that God used David to deliver Israel once again. And thus we see that God actually bountifully rewarded King Saul for heeding the pleas of his son because God used David to deliver Israel through David's sword and through David's wisdom on the battlefield. But as soon as David returned from the battlefield again, victorious, all he does is prosper, it seems. Uh, as soon as he returns victorious from the battle, we see the torment brewing up in King Saul's heart once again. Uh, as, as David played the harp for King Saul with his harp in his hand, Saul begins carrying his spear around the house again in his hand. Uh, David had to know that trouble was imminent when he saw this. But Saul was tormented by this evil or, or harmful spirit that the Lord had sent to Saul. And before long, it got the best of him. And King Saul, once again, for the third time, tried to pin David to the wall with his spear at point-blank range. What are we supposed to think of the torment that King Saul has? I mean, he was clearly clearly a tormented man. I'd say, first of all, we should understand that he was tormented because he wanted to do what he knew was wrong. He knew there was a moral line, and he knew that he wanted to cross it. He wanted to spill innocent blood. But at the same time, at the same time, the law of God's written upon his heart. So, on one hand, he's a slave to sin. On the other hand, he's got the law of God written on his heart restraining him. This is why the unregenerate person can't even begin to know what it's like to have the sense of peace that passes all understanding that Christians are able to have. Well, what's a Christian supposed to do when they're tempted to sin? We're to resist the devil, right? Resist the devil and he'll flee. Sometimes we're supposed to flee from things like sexual immorality uh, we've been freed from being slaves to sin. Our, our nature was, was bound, right? We, we were, we were uh, sinners by nature uh, and by choice, uh, but now we've been free from that. Our, our, our nature is no longer bound to sin. Uh, and so when sin tempts us, it's important for us to resist it because we can. 
A Christian can. Somebody who hasn't been regenerated, they can't. But a Christian can. Uh, For some people, that might mean saying something as simple uh, to yourself as, hey, you know, uh, I can't do this. Christians don't do this. I can't do this. You know, this wouldn't make God happy, so I'm not going to do this. Uh, Sometimes it might mean removing yourself from a certain situation. Or maybe it means doing something to occupy your mind, you know, putting your mind on something else. Uh, whatever the case may be, we have the freedom as Christians to resist sin, to resist temptation. But when an unregenerate person is tempted to sin, what is it that stops them? They've got the law of God written on their hearts, warning them to resist uh, these sinful impulses, and yet, at the same time, they are slaves to sin. Their nature is in bondage to sin. And thus they must sin. So Saul is a picture of every unregenerate person who knows what he should and and, and shouldn't do, and yet doesn't have the least, but the slightest bit of power to resist even his own lust or his own anger or other wicked inclinations. And that's why Gordon Ketty notes in his commentary, quote, without a saving change, a sinner is a mess, end quote. Because they're basically in a tug of war where they've got something restraining them and they've got something pulling them. This is why we say that common grace restrains sin. It doesn't, we don't say that it defeats sin. It doesn't defeat sin. But it does work to restrain it. It doesn't work to release the sinner from bondage to sin, but it may uh, lessen the expression of sin. It delays sin, or maybe it lessens the expression of sin. But the only way for sin ultimately to be defeated in a person is for God to give a person a new heart and a new nature, which, praise be to God, He is still in the business of doing. But before we continue, I think it's worth noting that a lot of people have trouble with the notion that God would send an evil or harmful spirit to torment King Saul. Uh, But this is simply a temporal judgment against Saul's sin. Does God reserve the right to exercise temporal judgment against a, a person? Of course He does. God is in no way obligated to allow Saul to just live a peaceful life of sinful rebellion against him. Similarly, God isn't obligated to let a nation remain sane and moral while they steadfastly reject God and turn their back on Christ. Uh, Paul writes of God's temporal judgment on nations who have rejected him and how uh, God hands nations over to their sins. He writes about this in Romans chapter 1. I mean, what do you think? Looking at our country, What do you think may have caused the insanity that America has especially been experiencing since a very pivotal court case in 2015? You know what I'm talking about. Writing about how how humanity rejects God, worshiping the creature rather than the creator, which is exactly what that court case allowed, by the way. Paul writes that God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. That's what he writes in Romans one twenty four. Then he goes on to say, God gave them over to degrading passions, verse 26, verse 28, and to a depraved mind and to do those things which are not proper. God has the sovereign right to do this. 
It's perfectly just. God is never unjust. He's giving people what they want. Richard Phillips writes that, quote, when men, women, and societies have utterly turned from God, He unleashes His judgment upon them in the form of unrestrained passions, displaying by His judgment the sin, folly, and torment of those who have turned from God and reaped godlessness in return, end quote. The fact is, friends, sin is never inconsequential. Sin always has consequences, and God never does what's unjust in punishing sin. But this entire principle is demonstrated in King Saul's life here and and elsewhere. We see that common grace may temporarily restrain his sinful desires and inclinations, but ultimately Saul, like everybody else who is unregenerate, is a slave to sin, both by nature and by personal choice. But Saul could not do what God would not allow him to do. And thus he could not murder David even at point-blank range. So God calls the shots in in this universe, not kings. We should see that. Not kings. And he mocks and he laughs those, uh, at those who attempt to thwart his plans and his purposes. And thus, God uh, uses common grace as a means of helping David to escape King Saul's attempt at murder once again. God preserves him. Let's continue, verses 11 to 17. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michal let David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. Michal took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me on his bed, that I may put him to death. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with the quilt of goat's hair at its head. So Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me like this, and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michal said to Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I put you to death? Here again, we see God's common grace as a means of preserving the life of his servant, David. David returns home to his wife, who's also Saul's daughter, Michal. And Saul sends his people to David's house with the plan of putting him to death the following morning. So Michal gets word of this somehow, and she helps David to escape. She lowers him down from a window so that he can escape unnoticed and unharmed. But what seems very clear here is that, yes, Michal did love David, but she was nevertheless as lost as her father was, as unregenerate as her father was. Uh, She didn't appear to share a common faith with her brother Jonathan or with her husband David. That's how we make sense of the fact that there was a large idol in the house that she and David had. Uh, And it it was was a large enough idol uh, that it looked, when she laid it on the bed and covered it with clothes, it looked like it could have actually been David. Uh, How could David not have known 
that this idol was in the house? That's one of the questions that we're left with. And the answer is, we don't know. Maybe she had it hidden. Uh, maybe it was something that, uh, that he knew about and didn't realize what it was. Uh, we don't know. We don't know why it was in the house. But it was in the house, and Michal obviously knew what it was. And so when Saul sent his people up to retrieve David the next morning, uh, Michal lies to protect David, uh, telling them that David was in bed sick. Uh, as if that's going to make a difference uh, to a king who wants to kill him. Okay, he's sick, I can still kill him, so bring him out here on his bed so that I can kill him is basically the instruction. So Saul sends his men up to get David anyway, and they discover that it wasn't David after all. It was uh, the household idol that Michal had dressed up. But we're supposed to see here that Michal didn't do what her brother had done. She didn't do what Jonathan had done. She didn't appeal to the common grace of reason at all. Instead, she just tries to deceive her father. She's loyal to David, okay, for now, but in time she's going to prove herself to be absolutely godless. Uh, when she will despise David for worshiping God when the Ark of Yahweh is brought back into Jerusalem. That's in 2 Samuel 6.16. So this reveals a couple things for us, uh, which are going to help us to understand why things go wrong in David's life down the road. First of all, he seems to have had an eye for women. He, he, he knew that Michal loved him. Uh, she, yeah, she was offered to him in marriage. He had turned down the older daughter, if you remember, the older sister, but he went ahead with the plans given to him uh, to marry Michal. So he seems to have had an eye for women, maybe uh, a specific uh, hair length, who knows? He seems to have had an eye for women, but given that Michal doesn't serve the Lord, and that's obvious, it would have seemed very odd that David would have taken the opportunity to receive her hand in marriage nevertheless. But it's only odd if we don't at least give the possibility, acknowledge the possibility that David's heart probably isn't entirely pure when it comes to attractive women. At least not yet. After it has its full effect in his life, that's going to be restrained in his life. He's going to repent of it, right? But at this point, uh, it doesn't seem to be much of a problem, but it's, even though it's hardly noticeable, it looks like it's probably there. It's, it's small, but it's growing. Now, you'll remember that King Saul had, uh, had plotted against David in the previous chapter, thinking that Michal would be a snare for David. And that is that she would entice him to become an idolater. And here we're seeing exactly why he thought that. Because Michal is an idolater. And given her idolatry, it's not surprising that she continues to deceive her father and was willing to even slander her own husband's character in doing so. Saul says to her, why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go that he has escaped? And Michal said to Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I put you to death? David didn't say that to her. That isn't true at all. In fact, that is slanderous. There would be no excuse for David's sin of adultery and, and polygamy down the road. But it seems at least possible that his sin could be motivated uh, by the fact that he and Michal were not equally yoked. 
Now, that doesn't excuse David's sin one bit. There's never an excuse for sin, but it might help us to understand it and to explain it. But for now, regardless of the sin of his wife, David has escaped again from King Saul's grasp. And again, it's common grace that has resulted in his escape because God used his unbelieving wife to not only help David to escape, but it also brought him some time to get far enough away that he could be safe, at least for a while, at least temporarily. Uh, We'll see now that uh, it doesn't last very long. Let's look at verses 18 to 24. Now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and, and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Naioth. It was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Naioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. But when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came as far as the large well that is in Secu. And he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? And someone said, Behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. He proceeded there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also, so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Naoth and Ramah. He also stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Now one would think that David would be safe with Samuel uh, in Ramah. It's believed that it was actually on this journey to Ramah that David composed the 59th Psalm. Uh, David was supposed to have been killed in the morning, but David would write in Psalm 59, verse 16, But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning. For you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. That explains exactly what his mindset was as he fled. He was trusting in the Lord the whole time, recognizing that it was God who was giving him the opportunity to, uh, to escape. God was the one preserving his life. But going to the place where Samuel was ministering, uh, it was a wise move on David's part. It would give him a chance uh, to take a little bit of a breather, have a, a time of fellowship, uh, maybe devotion, some instruction possibly from a mature brother in the faith. Uh, But the fact that David was able to survive all these attempts on his life, some at point-blank range, reminds us that it is God who causes all things to pass. Uh, Everything that comes to pass comes through God's sovereign decree. Nothing happens that he does not ordain. Nothing happens that he does not allow. And when we see through all of David's trials that God is faithful to his promises and to his purposes and to his people, it gives us confidence that he is a God who can preserve his people in crazy, terrible circumstances and that he uses common grace as one of the means of preserving his people. 
Now, it wouldn't be long before David's life would be in danger again. Did a day pass? Maybe a couple days passed? We don't know. But it wouldn't be long. News would reach King Saul that David was at Naioth in Ramah, and Saul responded by sending his messengers to go and take David. But as these messengers drew near, we're told that they suddenly broke out prophesying as the Spirit of God came upon them. By the way, that is a reminder that if somebody appears to be demonstrating spiritual gifts, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Even if what they're saying is true, it doesn't mean that that person uh, is saved. His messengers clearly weren't, and Saul clearly wasn't when it came to him. So this isn't to say that these messengers had been saved. They weren't. Rather, it's a picture of the power of God to thwart the evil plans of wicked, wicked men. Matthew Henry comments that God, quote, showed how he can, when he pleases, strike an awe upon the worst of men by the tokens of his presence in assemblies of the faithful and force them to acknowledge that God is with them of a truth, end quote. In this case, these people, these men, are suddenly speaking and acting in ways that are contrary to their own respective wills. It's like a computer that's been hijacked, right? That's been hacked. And it's doing things that you're not telling it to do. But somebody is. In this case, God is the one causing these men, these messengers, to prophesy, even against their respective wills. And this happens to three companies of Saul's messengers. And at some point, Saul eventually starts thinking to himself, what a bunch of weak men. I'll go after David and get him myself. And so Saul goes to Naoth in Ramah to get David. And God causes the same thing to happen to Saul, except God causes Saul to make an even bigger fool of himself. Uh, What we see, uh, we see here that Saul really is revealed to be just a complete fool. That's what the picture of nakedness represents. Absolute foolishness. Why was he incapable? Why was, why was Saul incapable of doing what he desired to do? He came there to kill David. Why couldn't he do it? Because God wouldn't let him. Because God would not allow him to, and he revealed Saul instead to be a fool in front of the whole world. It, it's almost comical, but it's sad. But listen to what Psalm 2 says about how God responds to men like Saul. Psalm 2, one, verses 1 to 4, says, Why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Now, if it just stopped there, we might think that David wrote this about this very situation. But if a person, the lesson here is that if a person is determined to resist God and to rebel against God, this is a warning to you, just as Saul's foolishness is a warning to you, that God will not be mocked. He will accomplish His sovereign will. And so, if you can't accomplish anything by standing against Him and rebelling against Him, and if you know that His wrath is coming against you, As this psalm would eventually warn, what should you do? You should heed the advice that Psalm 2 ends with. Verses 11 and 12, it says, Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage or kiss 
the Son, that he may not become angry and that you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. In who? In the anointed. And we should remember that Christ is God's anointed. That's what the name Christ actually means. It means anointed one. So instead of persisting in trying to rebel against God and to defy God, the call here is for people who are tempted to do that and who think that they can just get away with doing that to turn away from their sin immediately and to ask God to forgive them of their sin. But you have to know that in order for sin to be forgiven, the debt of sin must be paid. Who can do that? Only a spotless lamb. Only a lamb without blemish. And for that reason, we say that Jesus can do it. And only Jesus. Only Jesus was without blemish. Only Jesus was without sin. And thus, He alone is qualified to atone for sin. So do what the psalm instructs. Do homage to the Son. What does that mean? Or kiss the Son. What does that mean? It essentially means submit to Him. Obey Him. Do what He says. Honor Him. Take refuge in Him. That's why the psalm ends with how blessed are those who take refuge in Him. See, to take refuge means to take shelter. means to find protection in something. In this case, God's wrath is coming like a violent torrential storm that's going to be poured out against sin. And only those who take refuge in His Son, only those who take refuge in Jesus Christ will be sheltered from the storm of His wrath. David would write in Psalm 59, again, this is what he probably wrote on the journey to Naoth in Ramah. Uh, in verses 10 and 11, he said, God is my stronghold. My God in His loving kindness will meet me. God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. His hope was not in himself. His hope was entirely in God. This is the peace and comfort that Christians can also rest in. That Jesus is the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. And if He is therefore with us, and if He is for us, who can stand against us? We are safe within the walls of God's sovereign will. And if anything is going to harm us, if anything is going to touch us, it must first come through those walls. And so if, if it comes, if God does allow it through those walls, we must trust that God knows what's best. And we must trust His promise that He is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes, that being conformed to the image of His Son. So if, if harm may come our way, we can rest assured that it is ultimately for our good. And God has allowed it to come to us for that reason. So may God bless us with this peace, this sense of peace. And may the reality of His common grace give us confidence to proclaim the message of saving grace 
among the heathen nations, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, working in accordance with the preaching of the good news of the gospel, our enemies may become our brethren. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you not only for your redemptive saving grace, but we thank you for the grace that sustains us, the grace that is common to man that allows us to uh, continue in our lives uh, and continues to give us assurance that your plans and your promises will all come to fruition. They will all be fulfilled. No one can thwart your hand. All authority rests in you. We thank you for this assurance. We thank you for this confidence. Uh, We thank you for your promises that we can stand on in times of adversity, times when harm does touch us. Uh, We can be assured that it has only come upon us because you have allowed it. And nothing can come against us that you don't allow. We pray, Father, for, uh, for us to have courage to act in accordance with this knowledge, to share the gospel, to endure persecution for your name's sake, uh, to do what is right, knowing that it may be costly, and yet doing all of these things because we are confident that you are sovereign and that you are working all things in accordance with your sovereign will. So we thank you for these promises and this assurance. And we pray, Lord, that our lives would reflect a confidence in these things for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.